Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. The question of how local law enforcement is supposed to cooperate with federal immigration officials is playing out differently across New England, including in the courts. We don't want to be put in a position where we're picking and choosing which ones that we deem appropriate and which ones are not. We just want a straight answer. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. From a Massachusetts courtroom to the highways of Vermont and New Hampshire, we'll find out how where you are makes a big difference in how immigration laws are enforced. We'll also take a road trip to a city built on manufacturing and made famous by basketball that's betting on becoming a hub of tourism and gambling. People, when they start talking about where they're going to go for vacation, what I'm envisioning is somebody saying, let's go to Springfield. And we'll listen to some of the sounds of Springfield as we visit a community TV station and its talent show. The name of their program, like ours, is Next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up, a city known for basketball and manufacturing makes a bet on becoming a gambling hub. If you draw a 100-mile circle around Springfield, you'll hit three capital cities and you'll hit one of the fastest growing smallest communities in, in Brattleboro, Vermont. A visit to Springfield, Massachusetts to watch a casino being built. But first, a case this past week in front of the Mass Supreme Judicial Court could determine how much local law enforcement is able to cooperate with federal immigration officials. We've been covering stories like this in so-called sanctuary cities. The case is called Commonwealth versus Lun, and the court will decide whether local law enforcement are authorized to detain a person solely at the request of U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, otherwise known as ICE. Shannon Dooling from WBUR has been following the case. ICE detainers are requests to hold a person in custody whose criminal proceedings have been settled, meaning charges have been dismissed, they've posted bail, or their jail sentence has been completed. A detainer gives ICE up to two days to look into a person's immigration status and potentially pursue deportation. So in Mr. Serinan Lund's case, larceny charges against him were dropped by a district judge. ICE, however, had issued a detainer requesting the court hold Lund, even though his criminal charges were cleared and he was otherwise free to go. And this is where the constitutionality of ICE detainers comes into play. We're just trying to understand uh, from our perspective as police chiefs, police officers, what can we quote unquote honor and what can we not honor? Chelsea Chief of Police Brian Kyes says he's hoping the court will hand down some clarification when it comes to the role of local law enforcement fulfilling ICE detainers. Right now, there's just so much uh, confusion. Uh, it's a very complicated process, and uh, we don't want to be put in a position where we're picking and choosing which ones that we deem appropriate and which ones are not. We just want a straight answer. An ICE detainer is not the same thing as an arrest warrant, which requires proof of probable cause and sign-off from a judge, legally empowering police to detain a person. ICE detainers, on the contrary, are voluntary requests directly from ICE. On its website, ICE argues when local police or courts decline to hold someone on a detainer, the safety of the community is jeopardized. 
Attorney General Jeff Sessions, the nation's top law enforcement officer, says the use of detainers is a common practice. It's just a fundamental principle of law enforcement that if you uh, have a person arrested and another jurisdiction has a charge, then uh, they file a detainer. And when you finish with the prisoner, you turn them over to the next jurisdiction for their adjudication. And that's the way it works with criminal cases. But immigration law is civil in nature, which means different rules apply. One of the lawyers arguing on behalf of Lund, Emma Winger, says the federal government's public safety logic is also problematic. By their nature, detainers only apply to folks who uh, would otherwise be released by the court. And so I, I don't think that the declining a detainer raises new public safety concerns. Winger says this case isn't about who ICE can and cannot deport. Instead, Winger is arguing that when local police and courts honor detainers, holding someone for civil immigration reasons at the request of ICE, they are actually violating a person's constitutional liberties. She says this argument is especially relevant given the new enforcement priorities handed down by President Trump. We know that ICE is now going to be issuing many more detainers and detainers not just for people with criminal convictions or criminal records, but anybody that they think is deportable. And so our law enforcement and our courts are entitled to some guidance about whether or not the act of honoring detainer is legal. The ACLU of Massachusetts filed a brief in this case, arguing that it is unconstitutional for local authorities to hold someone based solely on a request from ICE. Legal director of ACLU Massachusetts, Matthew Siegel, says holding someone without oversight from an independent judge can lead to mistakes. There have been numerous instances all over the country where uh, people have been arrested on these detainers who shouldn't have been, including United States citizens. It's very likely to happen again. Jacinta Gonzalez is an immigrant rights advocate and a U.S. citizen living in Phoenix, Arizona. Gonzalez says she was held in custody last year on an ICE detainer when she refused to answer questions from immigration agents. She says eventually ICE confirmed her citizenship and told her to leave the office. Because they don't have any probable cause, your last name, the color of your skin, your accent is sufficient to place one of these against you basically taking away your freedom, basically taking away your ability to to get out of jail. The decision by the SJC could have national implications. There are similar cases across the country looking at the constitutionality of local police and courts enforcing ICE detainers. Attorney General Maura Healy's office is arguing on behalf of the Commonwealth and the Suffolk County Sheriff, both parties to the Lund lawsuit, In a statement, Healy's office said ICE detainers are voluntary under state law and courts and police may not detain people based solely on a request from ICE. The statement goes on to say, quote, there are many ways in which state and local enforcement agencies can and do work with the federal government to protect against individuals who pose a risk to public safety. That's Shannon Dooling reporting. Let's turn north of the mass border now for our next story. As you just heard, the directive from the Trump White House to immigration enforcement has stirred up a series of legal questions. This marks a change from Obama-era directives telling agents to prioritize deporting individuals who were convicted of serious crimes. But how do immigration agents find undocumented but otherwise law-abiding immigrants? It turns out there's a big difference state to state, including in neighboring Vermont and New Hampshire. 
I talked with reporters Emily Corwin and Kathleen Masterson about the starkly different approaches being taken by law enforcement. In Vermont, that state recently implemented a statewide policy about how local law enforcement is supposed to handle interactions with someone who might be undocumented. I asked Kathleen, what prompted that policy? Well, there were a number of factors, but one of the early ones was in 2011, um, the Vermont State Police pulled over a vehicle uh, for speeding, and the passenger in the seat was Danilo Lopez. Um, and after he was unable to produce proper identification, the state police ended up um, detaining him and handing him over to Border Patrol, uh, setting in motion a deportation order, which he eventually stayed. But uh, the point being, it became a really high-profile case that uh, what was what were the police doing detaining someone, a passenger, um, for, for his immigration? status alone, not for having committed any crime or being held um, in relationship to any crime. And another very similar incident happened after this was kind of underway in 2015, where another passenger um, was detained while the Grand Isle County Sheriff's Department called uh, ICE, and he actually won. He took his case to the Vermont Human Rights Commission, and it was found that they discriminated against him, and he won um, a $30,000 settlement in that case. So those two high-profile cases helped push the legislature um, to basically mandate that the uh, a Vermont body that oversees the police academy write up uh, what they call fair and impartial policing rules to give police guidelines on how to behave um, and really more strictly lay out that e- police are not supposed to be acting as immigration uh, uh, enforcement agents. Give us some details on what this policy prohibits when it comes to local law enforcement and immigration enforcement officials. It says uh, don't use a person's characteristics to ask about or investigate his or her immigration status. Um, it says to ensure that detention is no longer longer than necessary to take action for the known or suspected offense. And then specifically, suspicion about a person's civil immigration status shall not be used as a basis to initiate contact, detain, or arrest that person. But there might be cases where ICE agents call up the local police and say, do you have this person? Um, the they are, Local police are not supposed to ta- detain that person for ICE. That's been highly contested um, nationally. But they can certainly share information. And in fact, they're required to under a federal statute. Um, If it's relevant, they're required to share information with the feds. So I wanted to give an example from the state police. I recently did a ride along with uh, Sergeant Stephen Coote. He mentioned a scenario where he did interact with ICE agents and the person's immigration status um, came up in a case that was relevant to the crime. It was as a result of an arrest of a male suspect uh, in Addison County. uh, And he was charged with domestic violence, an uh, offense of domestic violence, and that's when uh, an immigration status uh, inquiry was made, uh, and then we worked with ICE as a part of that. And that's the only case that I've I've dealt with here in Madison County. So he did not know how that case ended up, but the relatively quickly ICE agents did contact him and ask for the case number uh, and get that information uh, because that's considered domestic violence is considered a fairly serious crime. So this is one view of how local or state law enforcement works with ICE officials. Let's hop across the border and find out from Emily Corwin how New Hampshire compares to Vermont. Right. So I I was interested in that, too. And I went to the state police, uh, the troopers, and I talked to Major Russell Conti. And, you know, he, he explained to me that at state police in New Hampshire, troopers absolutely can ask about immigration status. They aren't directed to necessarily, but they are allowed to. And when they find out that somebody is unauthorized or may not have papers, they absolutely do call ICE. And how often is this happening? 
So uh, nobody keeps track at the state police. The you know they, it gets written into reports along with everything else having to do with pretty much everything else that troopers do. But nobody's looking over those reports. They don't know. Conti uh, says it doesn't happen very often. He said, "I think this happens a lot less often than you think it happens." You know, he was reading into why I might be there, and he was really concerned that that he he didn't want the troopers to look like they were racial profiling. He didn't want people to think that the troopers were hunting undocumented people. He said, you know, our first priority is safety. Make sure everybody present is safe. He said victims are always safe to come forward no matter their status. Uh, so so immigration attorney Enrique Mesa says the 90 to 100 people who are staying at the Stratford jail on ICE detentions every day, that's Stratford County, New Hampshire. It's where, you know, all or most New Hampshire detentions take place and many from the rest of New England. He said, you know, of those 90 to 100 people who are there every day, 80 percent come from law enforcement reports to ICE. He says more than half of that comes from New Hampshire State Police. So, like, if you do the math, that's that's 40 people or so who are behind bars every day in New Hampshire because a trooper uh, contacted ICE. Conti obviously doesn't want his department to be seen as targeting people with undocumented status, and he doesn't want to be seen as getting people deported, but is that in effect what's happening? Well, there are no policies, no laws, no memos directing them not to ask citizenship or not to contact ICE. Conti says they don't ask as a rule about citizenship. So we're not about breaking up families or homes. We try to, you know, stay within the purview of public safety and and go and ask, you know, who we see as the experts in, in that, and that would be people from customs and immigration. The thing is, whether or not the state police are, you know, wanting to break up families, they're contacting ICE, and ICE is being directed by the new White House administration to do that to break up families when someone doesn't have papers. So that's a change. We're hearing two very different versions of policing in New Hampshire and Vermont. In New Hampshire, Emily, they don't have to cooperate with ICE officials. Nobody's telling them that they have to make these phone calls that they're making. Why are they doing it? Is it a public safety issue? So um, according to Russell Conti, the reason he gives is human trafficking, the fear that human trafficking is taking place. You know, there were 25 cases in the last two years of uh, human trafficking in New Hampshire. But interestingly, only two were men and only five were not U.S. citizens. So it's true human trafficking is taking place, but no, uh, it doesn't look like most of the cases are sort of relevant to ICE. What about local police in New Hampshire? The Vermont law applies across the board to both state troopers and also local police. What happens at the local level in New Hampshire? Uh, at the local level, it is entirely up to the chief of police. I've talked to chiefs of police who train their officers clearly never to ask um, unless there's you know been a, a felony crime um, in which they will call ICE. I've talked to many other departments who say, oh, yeah, sure, we'll, we'll ask people's immigration status, and if we have any suspicion, we will contact ICE. And so it's really um, up to the um, people in leadership roles. That's Emily Corwin of New Hampshire Public Radio and earlier Kathleen Masterson of VPR reporting. Coming up, a casino rises in downtown Springfield, where both a tornado and economic decline had ripped the city apart. So is a casino the answer? Find out next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. 
Springfield, Massachusetts and resort casino aren't words that most of us expect to hear in the same sentence. But if you live in the area, you've probably been hearing them for years. MGM Resorts is building a casino that spans three blocks in the city's struggling downtown, set to open in the fall of 2018. Construction started two years ago, but the political groundwork was laid back in 2011 with two separate events. That June, two tornadoes ripped through the area, causing 17 miles of damage, including right in the heart of downtown. Officials there wondered what to do to rebuild. Then in the fall of that year, hoping to recapture some of the gambling dollars that have been leaving Massachusetts for years, the state passed a law allowing for three casinos to be built, including one in the western part of the state. After a lengthy process, Springfield won that bid and construction got underway. But Connecticut's two federally recognized Indian tribes, long the beneficiaries of those Massachusetts customers, well, they got worried. With three new casinos being built up north, including one just a half hour from Hartford, they saw their already sagging revenues about to take a bigger hit. So the Mohegans and the Mashantucket Pequots formed a partnership with the state of Connecticut to help build a new casino in the Hartford metro area. More on that plan in just a bit. The big question for the city of Springfield, Mass., is whether the massive development will give the city the economic boost that it sorely needs. The mood was pretty upbeat when we visited the MGM construction site at the end of March. Reporters and officials were milling around after a ceremony that was marking a milestone in the construction. I spoke with Mike Mathis, president of MGM Springfield. Hi. How are you? Good, thanks. Good. Hey, thanks for, thanks for meeting us. Of course. Uh, what just happened there? Yeah, that was uh, the construction milestone of topping off the last sort of piece of uh, structural steel. And we put it on top of our signature rotunda hotel corner on Main Street in Howard. So it was an exciting moment. Uh, we had the, the mayor here, the local public officials, as well as looked like about a couple of hundred uh, iron worker carpenters. So we celebrated together. Maybe you can describe what all we're going to see here when all the walls are up. Yeah. So we're standing really, in some ways, the heart of the, the entire project. We're in the outdoor plaza. Um, in front of us will be the casino facility. Uh, to the right of it is the hotel tower. Uh, above it is the convention center, conference center. It sort of comes around to our left and integrates into our um, premium luxury movie theater. And then we'll have a uh, sports bar downstairs, as well as bowling alley and retail. Uh, and hard to ignore the castle-like building right behind me, which is the old state armory building, which, which will have some kind of uh, food and beverage programming that we're working on. Now, I, I, I got to say, we, we drove up from Hartford, and, and on the right-hand side of the road, we, we waved by an old broken-down movie theater, which is being eyed up by the two tribal casinos in southeastern Connecticut and the state of Connecticut to buy a casino that's going to be, I don't know, maybe about 15 miles away from this place. H how do you see the possibility of another Connecticut casino so close to this one impacting the business model that you have for what's being built right here? All I can do is make sure, regardless of the competition, that we build a really compelling experience. And it'll be world-class and it'll draw from, from um, past any other competitors because you can't deliver uh, Main Street Springfield in any of these other settings. And you can't deliver the MGM brand and customer service. So we'll, uh, we'll continue to make sure that we're, uh, we're the destination of choice. And our market's big enough that, frankly, um, it's not us versus them. There's, there's, there's plenty of... Uh, there's, there's plenty of customers that want to have this experience. An awful lot of people here 
in the surrounding area, and in other cities say, you bring a, a casino into a city, you bring some of the problems that come with a casino. How have you looked to address some of the concerns that people have in a community like this, that there are going to be people who don't have a whole lot of money and have been struggling uh, by that are going to now have a place to you know, gamble away some of their very meager earnings. How do you balance those two things as you're trying to do this? We, we've got a lot of non-gaming um, experiences, and that's the that's what the locals have patted me on the back for. So um, the feedback we're getting from the folks are that we like what you're doing at the resort. We want a movie theater. We want a bowling alley. We want an outdoor plaza where we can bring our families. Um, if we if if some nights you want a game, then that's perfectly okay. We really want to change the concept of losing money in a casino to spending money on entertainment, and gaming is a piece of that entertainment, but it's not the only piece. After I wrapped up my talk with Mathis, Melvin Edwards joined me at the construction site. He's a lifelong Springfield resident and he's a city councilor. He says he was on board with the MGM proposal from the start. I've been desperate for jobs and for economic development and investment for many decades. So when the ideal of a casino came, I looked at it as an opportunity for to spur other types of investment and development in the area. Um, and out of all of the casinos you know, that were being proposed, this is the only one that was unique and different than what we traditionally get with a casino. From my knowledge of casinos, generally it's the box with a, no clock, lots of drinks, and they get you in the box and they take your money and you essentially, you know, when you have no money, money no more money, that's when you're done. What they were proposing was uh, a little bit different. And that uh, when I talked to the representatives from MGM, what they told me was for them to get the return on their investment they needed the whole area of Springfield, at least downtown particularly, to be changed in its perception of crime and safety. They had to make work and partner with the city in order to change the perception that people who wanted to spend tourist dollars in Springfield could come to downtown on Main Street and they would feel safe, they would have um, a great experience. With all the boarded up storefronts downtown, it's understandable that visitors might not feel safe on Main Street after dark. Edwards says Springfield can trace its industrial demise, his words, to the decision by Congress to close the National Armory there in 1967. The armory had been established in 1794. It's a point of Springfield pride to him. He tells me it was instrumental in the North winning the Civil War. After the armory closed, the city never recovered those jobs or its downtown. But Edwards sees potential. See, if you draw a 100-mile circle around Boston, more than half your circle would be in the water. If you drove you uh, drew a 100-mile circle around New Haven, Connecticut, about a third of your circle would be in the water. If you draw a 100-mile circle around Springfield, you'll hit three capital cities, and you'll hit one of the fastest-growing, smallest communities in, in Brattleboro, Vermont. So we could position ourselves to be a distribution hub, first of all, for the distribution of product, but further than that, we have such good bones that we could look back on our history and position ourselves as a tourist destination. All tourist destinations don't have to be beach and sand. Well, so one of the, the concerns that people have about uh, casinos sometimes is, A, they're going to draw crime. People are going to spend their money that maybe they don't have gambling it away. And the jobs that you create out of a project like this tend to be a lot of either retail jobs or lower level jobs in the service economy that maybe don't pay a whole lot and aren't as sustainable as some of the jobs that have gone away. When, when people talk to you about those concerns, what do you say to them? Well, I can't argue those points away. They're all valid and legitimate points. The majority of jobs that is going to be created after it's open will be cleaning glass, floors, and being in service. Uh, making beds, those types of things. 
But when I looked at the proposal that for a casino to come, and I had multiple proposals to look at, this is the one that said, we will build a casino and we'll create so many construction jobs, which will be until we get open. But then we'll have two to 3,000 uh, support positions, but they'll pay a livable wage, which in, in this area has to be more than the $10 an hour minimum wage. And additionally, that there would be spinoff. That they would be able to tie the success of their casino to the other side of Main Street. We crossed over Main Street to peer in the windows of a spacious closed down restaurant with a marquee that still reads The Black Pearl. It turns out that Basketball Hall of Famer Magic Johnson's company is partnering with the local developer that owns that building to turn it into a Magic Johnson themed restaurant. So, so we walked by here before and I, I, I walked, this is the, like the bar that's closed down here? Yes. I, I looked in and I thought, what a great space. And the outside has the patio as well. That was, I had my first political event as an elected official there. Whenever I see a building like that, that has, it has great structural bones, it's got a space out back, like you said, there's a patio on the side. Look, there's a, there's a wood burning oven back there. Yes, and it has a full kitchen, it has a bar, uh, a nice space, uh, you know, it has a drinking space, and then a little further back, there's like a space for larger crowds to gather. It's, you know, it used to serve good food. Um, now, the, any investment in this, this would have said here vacant if it wasn't for MGM coming. But because MGMs, now you draw interest, and you draw interest from somebody who has a reputation of being successful. By the time the casino opens, the, uh, the thought is, is that you would be standing here, you would be able to see a police officer sitting in a booth down this way, and look this way and see also a police officer sitting in a booth. Mm. So the, that is the idea on how you're gonna make it safe. And doing that, you couldn't conceivably, and what I envision, People, when they start talking about where they're going to go for vacation, people here in Springfield probably can't see the woods or the trees because you're too close to it. But people could, could invent, what I'm envisioning is somebody saying, let's go to Springfield. We can take the kids to Six Flags in the daytime. And at night, we can leave them in the hotel and we can go to the casino. A few blocks from that storefront, also on Main Street, are the studios of New England Public Radio, where we sat down with two reporters who've been covering the casino battle between Mass and Connecticut. Mike Dobbs is managing editor of the Reminder Publications. Harriet Jones is business editor at WNPR in Hartford. Welcome to Next. Thank you for uh, inviting Thanks. me. So, Mike, I'm going to start with you. We just went on a tour of this new facility, at least around the outside, that's being built in downtown Springfield. It looks like a pretty impressive facility, and from what we hear, it's not going to be a typical casino. It's going to be a casino that has retail on the first floor that you can go in and out of, that it's going to weave into the fabric of downtown Springfield. As someone who lives here and has been covering this for a while, what do you see? Is it something that's going to work? I think it has a better chance of working with that particular format than the competing casino companies that came to town. Uh, Springfield had basically four casino companies, Ameristar, Hard Rock, uh, Penn National, and MGM. And everyone but MGM had basically a box. You put up a box, and you put gambling inside the box, and people will come to the box. And MGM came out with this idea that somehow they could actually add to the urban redevelopment of the downtown area. And the other part that you, you left out, which is really important, is this creation of 54 market rate apartments that are also part of their commitment to downtown Springfield. 
of course, the question always comes whenever there's a project like this in the downtown areas. What does it mean for the rest of the community? When we talked to City Councilman Melvin Edwards, he said, well, look, if there's more people in downtown Springfield and there's more economic opportunity, then that will mean more money that's being spent out in the neighborhoods. But it doesn't always work that way. In cities like Hartford, sometimes you you spend money downtown and it doesn't trickle into the neighborhoods and people feel resentful about that. I, you have the same situation here. You have people who look at their streets in various neighborhoods and say, why are there potholes? Why is the snow plowing not adequate? Um, they have, they're concerned about public safety. And there has been this great emphasis on we've got to do something downtown. So I'm I'm not of the school that somehow a successful MGM casino is going to actually translate in having my potholes fixed myself. Uh, I'm hoping that the money that MGM is contributing to the city does go for in that direction, but we'll see. Part of their business model is that they're not just going to be drawing people from the apartments that they're building or from Springfield proper or even... Uh, the area known as the Pioneer Valley, which I guess you guys call West Mass now. Uh, we don't. Um, no, not, I don't. <laughs> Someone else does. But they're, they're looking at this 100-mile radius, and they say they're going to draw people from all over New England to this. Does that seem realistic to you? I'm very concerned about that, and I'm concerned about it that if I was sitting in Albany and had a hankering to play the slots, I would go someplace closer than Springfield. Uh, are we going to draw from Worcester? Probably. Hartford, well, if it's easier to get on 91 in Hartford and come up here to do that than it is to go to the two tribal casinos, maybe. I'm very concerned about saturation of casinos in New England. Um, We're sort of a tight little area. It doesn't take a whole lot of time to drive around New England, really. Uh, And and therefore, are people going to stay in their neighborhood, so to speak, and and go to the, the place that's closest rather than drive an hour? That's what concerns me. So, Harriet Jones, that's where I want to bring you into the conversation. Connecticut, with two tribal casinos, is pretty rightfully worried about this new development at MGM in Springfield, as well as the other casinos that are being built in other parts of Massachusetts. So the state of Connecticut has gotten together with the two existing tribes that have casinos to put together a proposal of their own. Explain to us what exactly they're trying to do. Well, what this would do if it you know, finally passes the legislature is the two tribes who have joined together in this partnership entity known as MMCT, they're proposing to build a casino in uh, East Windsor, which would be, um, it's just about 13 miles from Springfield. So this would be a, a third casino in Connecticut that would compete directly with the Springfield Casino. And they're being pretty well bold-faced about this. They're saying they want to do this in order to keep business from going up to Springfield. That's why it's being proposed, right? Absolutely. They've said, you know, if we allow this to go ahead in Springfield and we don't challenge it, uh, jobs are going to go in the state. They've said they've put out a study that says more than 9,000 jobs in the state of Connecticut, both casino jobs and those jobs that suppliers uh, and businesses around the casino could be at risk. And they also, they, they point to the revenue that goes directly to the state. So 25% of slots revenues, both at Foxwoods and Mohegan Sun, currently go into the, the state's coffers. Uh, and they say, you know, it, that's probably about $260 million a year uh, at the moment. They say about $100 million of that could be at risk if, we, if Springfield goes ahead, if MGM is b- builds in Springfield, and we don't challenge that. But let's just do a little 
look at the map of New England and that maybe 100-mile radius that Mike was talking about before that the folks at MGM and Springfield are looking at as their potential market area. That includes the two tribal casinos that exist right now. An awful lot of the business that comes to those tribal casinos in southeastern Connecticut, snugged up against the Rhode Island border, it comes from the greater Hartford-Springfield area. So, Harriet, how exactly do they think that building another casino won't just take business away from the casinos they already have. Well, yes, <laughs> that that's an interesting argument. And, you know, I think it points to the fact that there's not an awful lot of independent research into, you know, how this all plays out. Is this one pie and everybody's fighting for a piece? Or is it, you know, are we growing a market here? Um, and I think, you know, especially lawmakers in Hartford have said, you know, we really don't have a lot of independent analysis of that a lot of the work that's out there in terms of economic research is bought and paid for by one side or the other. Uh, the tribes have retained Dr. Clyde Barrow, formerly of UMass Amherst, um, who's one of the foremost uh, casino economists in the in the nation. And he, you know, has put out this study saying this is the way that we can retain this business in the state. This is the smartest thing that the tribes can do. But again, lawmakers in Hartford are saying, well, this is a huge decision. You know, a lot of things, you know, for the good of the state rest on, you know, what side we come down on on this. And we really don't have enough information. Not enough information, Mike. And it's hard to get this information about whether or not there's saturation already in the gambling market of New England. And as we bring new casinos, not just in Springfield, but in other parts of Massachusetts online, if there'll actually be enough paying customers to keep this entire business alive. I've been trying to read as many uh, gambling industry uh, blogs and websites to see what they say. And by the way, a lot of them are not are not really looking favorably at the Springfield Casino simply because of the concept of oversaturation. I I am hoping that this is successful. I am hoping that we're able to draw enough people. And it's no slight to the state of Connecticut whatsoever. But it, it seems to me that um, the biggest question is not going to be settled until another f- five or six years in the future when we really see a trend and what that trend is. So what's public opinion surrounding this in Connecticut look like, Harriet? Because legislators aren't going to want to go through with another casino plan if people in the immediate area around where it's going to be built or even across the state don't want to be... Uh don't want to have any part of it. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I really think public opinion is kind of all over the map. And in some ways, it probably depends where you live. Um, down in the southeast, where the tribes have done a good, um, you know, a good job of kind of promoting this idea that this is how we save uh, th- those two existing casinos. You know, I think people are very much in favor of it. And you've seen a lot of labor unions and so forth come out to support the tribes to say, yes, this is how we, you know, bolster this industry in Connecticut. In up around Hartford itself, I think probably public opinion is is more mixed. The town in which they want to actually build um, the casino in East Windsor, the town uh, government is very much in favor of it. But there hasn't been a referendum, which I think, you know, a lot of lawmakers in Hartford are looking at that and saying, well, why why haven't we fully tested public opinion in the actual town where it's going to be built? And there is a significant, uh, there's something called the Coalition Against Casino Expansion in Connecticut that's mostly a faith-based organization. That includes some people in East Windsor that are saying, hold on a second, you know, casino gaming has considerable negatives, especially social negatives. Why are we going ahead with this? So, you know, again, I think public opinion is very, very mixed. 
even though it's going to be built in Springfield, it's going up around us right now, Mike. Is there some of the same objections still coming from some people in this area? People worried about the impacts negatively of having a downtown casino? There's a lot of people who are very concerned about increased uh, crime, increased traffic. Um, There's uh, one business that was in the south end. They've all removed. In fact, I, I talked to the guy. They moved to Chicopee. And I said, why did you move now? And they said, we just don't want to even be there. Uh, and, and, and it's a vacuum company. They sell vacuum cleaners. They've been in the city for, for decades. So they've moved in anticipation of having their business hurt because they were literally across the street on the other side of Union Street from the casino. So, yes, there are real concerns. So, Harry, getting back to this challenge that's coming from Connecticut to the MGM Casino, there's a whole bunch of hurdles still in the way. Obviously, the legislature hasn't fully signed off on it. But there's also a legal challenge coming from the folks at MGM because they don't want this to happen. Many other people who are in the casino business have said, well, why can't we get a piece of this action? Why is the state cutting a deal with just these two tribes? The state's attorney general has looked at this and wonders if it passes legal muster. Where are we with the legality of all this? Yeah, and that's an excellent question. (laughs) And, you know, you're right. Attorney General George Jepson brought out a legal opinion. He was asked by the governor for a legal opinion. And he came out and basically the headline was the legal risks of, you know, giving this third casino, the one that is supposed to be built by the tribes, giving that the go ahead. The legal risks are not insubstantial was the way that he put it. Um, So MGM has actually also previously sued the state over this, uh, what they call this kind of closed no-bid process. Um, That suit was dismissed on the grounds, you know, the, the, the state successfully argued that, well, you haven't been damaged yet because we haven't gone fully forward with this process and we don't have a specific proposal. Um, Jepson said in this new opinion, you know what, we probably couldn't use that argument again. Once we pass the final bill that says, yes, the two tribes can build this casino in East Windsor, probably MGM would have more legal standing to actually sue this so they could come back and have another go at the state. So, yes, uh, there's that legal risk. And then the other risk that really is very hard to quantify is around the compact because the two tribes have a compact with the state that they will remit 25% of their slots revenues from the two existing casinos. If you if you build a third casino, are you reopening that compact? Are you renegotiating it? Or are you just doing something different? Nobody's exactly certain how that would work. So are those original revenues also at risk? So there's a, there's a whole lot for lawmakers to think about. And how are those original tribal casinos doing right now, Harriet? That 25% uh, slot take that was such money in the bank 10, 15 years ago before the economic collapse of 2008, that's not been doing as well in recent years. No. Uh, the, the actual, I, I guess back in 2006 was the high of what they were remitting to the state. Back in 2006, they were remitting about $420 million to the state from their slots take. And that was, you know, that was their high watermark. Over the recession, you know, things kind of went into freefall. Things have stabilized a little bit post-recession, but they're still gently sliding. So, you know, it's not an expanding industry down there. Mike, you you seem skeptical, but you also live in Springfield. When it opens up, you going to go? You know, Las Vegas fascinates me. It's like this singular place on the planet. You can walk through Las Vegas and have a great time and never spend a dime on on a slot machine. I will be at MGM watching movies. I'm a big movie guy. That means there's going to be a movie theater within a mile of my house. That is pretty okay for me. But I'm I'm still going to go to the restaurants that are locally owned. I'm still going to go to shops that are locally owned. Um, I'm I'm 
I will support it, but I'm not going to be, you know, waving the pennant and, and wearing the T-shirt. So, Harriet, you live in southeastern Connecticut, just a stone's throw from two tribal casinos yeah. that have been there for a long time. You you ever go and drop a few bucks in the slots? I, I'm not. I have never, honestly, personally seen the appeal of gambling. <laughs> it just <laughs> doesn't do anything for me. But you know who I went to see at Foxwoods last year was Neil deGrasse Tyson. So that gives you that ah. gives you an idea of the range of the kind of things that you know often these venues can bring in. So yeah, I go I, I go not infrequently, not usually to gamble. Yeah, he actually knows knows an awful lot about the the odds of gambling, but yet still he comes. <laughs> there you go. It's it, it's amazing. Harriet Jones covers business for WNPR, and Mike Dobbs is managing editor of the Reminder Publications. Thank you both so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. Coming up, what else did we find in the shadow of the casino? The other next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of housing and homelessness. We've been exploring downtown Springfield, Massachusetts, as a new casino rises there. Just northwest of the casino site is a friendly storefront which houses the local cable access TV station. It's called Focus Springfield. MGM, in fact, now owns that building, and Focus is getting evicted. They've got to move out by November. I stopped in to chat with a host of one of the shows that tapes there. We wanted to meet them because that show is also called Next. Elaine Borhan, who goes by the name Elaine B., is a local musician who also scouts talent for the show. Uh, next is New England's Extraordinary Talent, if I have that right. With an X. With an X. That's why it's called Next. <laughs> Good to meet you. Very nice to meet you, too. So tell me about the show. Well, what we do is we bring in a lot of artists from all over. Sometimes I'd go to open mics. We'd bring them in, give them an interview, have them perform, and then we put it on the show. We have live bands also that we bring into the TV station. Tell me about your start as a musician. My story as a musician. Yeah. I never had the opportunity to do my music when I was growing up. So I raised my family. I have three beautiful kids. And now I think I have the time and nobody to tell me that I can't do it. So I'm doing it. And I think I touch a lot of people when I sing. So. But, but give, me, give me an experience that you had early on where maybe you were that scared person who wasn't sure that you could get up in front of a crowd and sing. What was I that like? I was very scared. My yeah. hair would start to get cold and I can't go up there. And I had someone who was my mentor that pushed me. Now I have my own band. It's called Versatile. So I came from not being able to go up on stage to be able to go up there and do a whole show. Our band, we do a lot of different kinds of music. We have reggae, soca, calypso, gospel. So tell me about some of this music. Who are we going to hear? So we're going to hear Terry Gajraj. He's actually uh, from Guyana, South America. He's from the country that I'm from. And he does a lot of uh, folk songs. He does originals. He does a lot of soca, calypso. Stop all the suicide. Stop all the violence. Stop all the homicide. Stop all the nonsense. Love, that is the answer. 
So it it's, has a reggae beat, mm -hmm. but it's not sort of traditional like a Jamaican reggae. What no. kind of music are we listening to there? It, you know, I don't know. It's a little bit of a little island music kind of reggae version. But I think he put a little soul in it too, so it's a little bit of a blend. What, what's chutney music? Chutney music, oh my gosh, do we have any clips of that? I cannot, <laughs> I can't explain chutney music, but it's a very broken language that we have and they sing it in that kind of language. So if I wanted to say to you, let's go, we're gonna say, come, let me go. Okay. So he'll sing it like that. And, and, and in part that comes from the, the blend of cultures mm -hmm. that, that your home country has. It, it really is a whole bunch of influences from everywhere, from Africa, yes. from South yes. America, from, from India. And, and that sort of feels a lot like what is happening in, in a town like Springfield, right? There's a lot of different influences in the music scene, don't you think? Yes, there is. And I have to tell you that my band, actually, we promote diversity. Everyone in my band is from different islands or Americans, and I'm very big on that. Do you, do you feel as though a city like Springfield thinks of itself as one, or do you see the people living in their own little areas and maybe people from different countries or different backgrounds not talking to one another? Well, it's not even in the city. I mean, you find that in workplaces too. I mean, there's always segregation and not everyone are into being one. Some people like their little clicks here and their little clicks there. And it's, it's something we have to accept. It's not gonna change and be that one. But if we can make a little bit here and a little bit there, it makes a difference. Where I grew up, Guyana, South America, I can actually meet you for just a few minutes and it's gonna be like if I knew you forever. And this is what I carry on. How long have you been living in New England? I have been here, if I tell you that, I don't know if I should tell you that, no. <laughs> I have been here for <laughs> over 30 years. Yeah, and do you feel like a New Englander years. now? I feel like a New Englander, but I think uh, when I go into New York, I am more accepted there than I am here. And I don't know why, maybe because there's a lot more people from my country living there. So I think we have a lot of work to do in New England area mm. to bring that to one. Yeah. You also had Charles Neville on this show. I had Charles Neville from the Neville Brothers. So, you might know his brother, Aaron Neville. Absolutely. So, <laughs> so now how did this happen? Well, I met Charles at the Iron Horse in Northampton and I, I talked to him like, you know me, I talk to everybody. So I said to Charles, um, call me sometime. I'm doing a project in Holyoke called The Next Stop Holyoke. And I would love it if you can come. But I told him, I'm like real. I said, you know, but I don't have the money to pay you. Yeah. <laughs> so he said to me, let me check my schedule and I'll call you. And in a couple of days, Charles called me and said, I will do it. Excellent. So he came and I had a 10 live band and he played one song with every band that night. Really? They were blowing up Facebook. That's fantastic. So he was playing with all the bands. He that played you had. one song with every band that played for me that night. Oh my goodness! No rehearsal. Just sort of they picked out a they tune. Just, and he, he was he just went in there and he joined them. I mean, so humble. What are we going to hear? We're going to hear a track. I'm not sure what we're playing tonight, but I know his son Khalif is a very good musician. He actually raps. So, so I, yeah, I think that that's I think that's who we have. Let's, let's, let's listen to a little bit. Devoted with parts like sex or Santeria guides and like white no show Uber Vow Plus to our divination we give them to you. So don't get confused by the algorithms of the picture. The nation's least sincere to the apparent part of nature. Boiling like a cold train, but core time nerve, shattering algorithms like rabbit over time. With new types of first stroke. The pink reveals the true way, no. 
I think we've got one more piece to play here. Yeah. These are three young girls I, I met. Maria Press, Alexandra Russell, and Livia Russell. Uh, they're actually very new, but you will hear about them. And they've called themselves, I'm going to have to try to pronounce this because it's a new name now. It's Alimakoro. Alimakoro. I like that. Okay. Let's listen. Some say How'd you hear about them? So their director, their musical director is uh, Geraldine Borgard, who is actually my choir director at church. And they sang for Christmas at the church. And uh, I told them, I said, I have to have you guys come to the TV show. So this is how I meet people and yeah. I just drag them in here. And I'm actually going to be doing some stuff with them because they're going to be backing me up. Oh, in really? In some harmony. Because sometimes when I do my songs, I have yeah. to do my own harmony. That's yes. excellent. You know, there is this new casino coming to town. Yes. And there is a chance that Springfield is going to have a lot more music, yes. talent, art, a lot more things yeah. happening that are coming from all over the world right here. Do you see that as a, as a good thing for this area? I do see that as a good thing. I myself, I wrote to them and I told them, I said, I made myself known. And I, like I'm saying, yeah. I'm never afraid to go. So I told them who I am, and I hope that when the casino is done, I can get an opportunity to play there. So I've been encouraging other uh, musicians. I said, get to them, send your little bio, get a video, and send it out there. You never know. So tell us about the guy we're going to hear next, Harry Rock. Who's Harry? Harry Rock. Harry Rock does a lot of different things, and I did not know that. The way I know him is at an open mic, playing his guitar and singing. Elaine B., thanks so much for joining us on Next. It was a pleasure. You wake up in the morning, you hear that work bell ring. They march you to the table, you see the same old thing. You can watch a video of Ain't Charles no and Khalif Neville performing on New England's Extraordinary Talent, or Next, on our website, nextnewengland.org. We also have a link to Elaine's interview with the Nevilles and Terry Gadrash. While we were at Focus, Elaine interviewed our producer, Andrea Moraskin, and me for her show next. We'll let you know when those interviews are posted. I saw some of the video already, and we look great. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrew Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Our digital editor is Heather Brandon. Production help this week from Kara Foster, Tony Bass, Stephen Carey, and the crew at Focus Springfield. Special thanks this week to Sam Hudzik at New England Public Radio. Our theme music's by Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.